The presidential motorcade had just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when three shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. To rescue a nation, restoring America requires dedicated citizens to refound our republic. Peoples become nations by following those who lead them to worship the same god or idols and to act habitually as they do. The Greeks call these habits ethics. These change for good and ill as prominent persons change or develop new ways of life or foreign influences impose themselves. The general population tends to follow. Plato and Aristotle led subsequent generations to note that peoples tend to take on their leaders' characters. Some see such changes as betrayal. If these alienate a large enough proportion of people, the body politic itself loses the capacity to act as a whole. Enough disarticulation and the body politic ceases to exist for practical purposes. Serious changes, regardless of their sources, lead some to want a resetting of the country on what they regard as its proper basis or outright resuscitation. This is a piece from The American Mind written by Angelo Codevilla. This guy was an amazing critical thinker. And today, uh, September 21st, he passed away. So we lost Angelo Codevilla, great soul. I think he was with the Claremont Institute. The pieces that he wrote were amazing. And if you get an opportunity to go back through theamericanmind.org, you should go back and check out some of these. And in fact, I'm going to go ahead and continue reading this piece here so that you get an idea. This was his final work before he passed away. Machiavelli wrote that doing that amounts to refounding a nation. And that is considerably more difficult than founding one in the first place. What does it take to refound a nation? The question is lively for the 21st century Americans because the changes that have taken place in the bipartisan ruling class that controls nearly all the institutions have explicably denied and denigrated what had made America itself. Today's ruling class leads and even forces Americans to act, speak, and think as if all that they had thought good were bad and vice versa. Almost as if a vengeful power had conquered the country. At least half the country yearns for some kind of rescue. Though history does not lack examples of nations rescued and refounded, most rescues involved overthrowing the dominion of foreigners rather than of mutated ruling classes. But as the book of Exodus shows, the removal of foreign influence is almost always much less than half the battle. Reference to foreign oppression is often a necessary, but always an insufficient factor. Charles de Gaulle's success against the Germans was not enough to overcome resistance to his efforts to restore France's corrupt body politic. Without a foreign focus, however, refounding can only be a civil war of variable temperatures. Abraham Lincoln's failure to avoid the civil war is as a clear example as there is. Machiavelli's near equation of reform with refounding 
mostly abstracts from the fact that for nations and regimes founded on and tailored for the people's characteristics, repeating something like the founding is not possible once these have changed. Peoples are far less malleable than regimes. On the one hand, successive generations of Romans were able to reset Rome more or less on the basis on which Romulus had set it by killing his brother Remus, who had trespassed on what became the Urbe's fundamental law, war against outsiders. Successive fathers of the fatherland reaffirmed that law. And when Cleomenes judged that Sparta's ephors had violated Lycuga's constitution, he definitely reestablished it by killing the ephors and their followers. The Soviet regime's fundamental law was the communist general secretary's murderous discipline of the party, which suffused society with fear and uncertainty. When Mikhail Gorbachev tried to rescue tyranny from the feudalism into which it had fallen under with Brezhnev, he might as well have succeeded had he been willing to kill as Lenin and Stalin had done. Doubtless, rescuing disrespected constitutions has always required and will always require undoing of a number of enemies. But there is little historical evidence that peoples who have constituted themselves nations on the basis of freedom can convert that nationhood's lively memory into rebirth. Self-government ever reflects self, and lost civic virtue is almost as unrecoverable as lost virginity. We're going to get into the rest of this back in just a moment. This is Adrian Slade. So we're paying homage to the late Angelo Codevilla, a great mind, a great thinker from AmericanMind.org. Um, this is basically, he's talking about how to rebirth a nation. You know, how do you take a nation that's already been founded watch it descend into tyranny and corruption and pull it back and reset it. So um, let's get back into this piece. Divisive leadership. The political conflict in which we are engaged pits some Americans who revere the legacy and memory of the republic founded in 1776 through 1789 against those who despise it and have corrupted the republic's institutions into an oligarchy. The concentration of corruptions in the ruling class does not minimize the reality that a part of the U.S.'s population are either uninterested in or opposed to any kind of restoration. We who res uh, resent that our ruling class's corruption deprives us of self-government are another part, hence governing ourselves again, resetting America on the basis on which it was founded is necessarily by, of, and for only we who want it. In short, America has changed so much from what it had been just a half century ago that any restoration implies some sort of mutual alienation, separatism or separation or secession, whether as a substitute for civil war or as a result of it. What kind of conflict might it take to rescue ourselves from what we regard as contemporary American corruptions? The process of rescue necessarily consists of Republican Americans would be leaders convincing themselves uh, and their followers to ignore, to disdain, and to resist the directions of society's commanding heights in favor of what they believe is more consistent with what America had been and should be again. It is essentially a revolutionary or counter-revolutionary process that requires equal doses 
of negation and affirmation. Silent secession by alienated individuals is inevitable and deadly. In 1967, hippie songwriter Arlo Guthrie invited those who wanted to drop out of America that they despise to mock its authorities by uh, singing them the meaningless, (laughs) you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Millions of East Germans said to themselves, on mink or without me, as they pretended to go alone. Many more Soviet subjects also kept their heads down as they spat out official lies with ever more evident mockery. Live not by lives, says Sultanism. In the long run, turning one's back, tacit hemorrhage of legitimacy dooms regimes, but it reforms and refounds nothing. Because nations consist of collective affirmation, founding, refounding, and mere repair require leadership that embodies, personifies, and secures the good to which individuals are invited to adhere. Statesmanship, that is, constitutive politics, consists of attracting the many to feel and to lead them to act as one. This means leadership must consist of identifying with a cause common and attractive to the people. But to meld the assertion of collective authority on behalf of a prospect at odds with the dominant power of the day to affirm a better future while leading collective uh, rejection of the present to say, quote, don't listen to them, listen to me and follow me, though it may cost you to do so, may be the most difficult message to formulate and deliver successfully because it inevitably foments strife. It must be part and parcel of reasonable plans to safeguard the people through that strife to the desired goal. Singular leadership. The larger the enterprise, the more diverse the people engaged in it, the more important it is that to be focused on one person whose own vision and character defines it, uh, defines its substance and cohesion. The American Revolution happened through the efforts of differently motivated people in scarce contact with one another. But it would not have succeeded, and certainly not in the same way, had it not been for George Washington. In the 1860s, countless Americans pushed and pulled the country around. Lincoln provided such uh, coherence, focus, and definition as Americans needed to get through its trial. His loss showed how important these had been. A defining leader's presence is essential for the members of the enterprise to recognize themselves as part of something that is alive. Leadership provides a living intelligence and will in which they can place their confidence on safety and success. To lead, someone must prove he knows what he's doing and that he cares and that he is going to make the whole thing work. At all times and in all places, persons personify enterprises. The greater the enterprise to be personified, the wilder and more diverse its interest and passions to be focused on it, the more essential it is for whoever does try to do it, meld himself into it. Charge of big things naturally tempts would-be leaders to think of themselves in large terms, to seek commitment to, uh, to themselves. There is no greater pitfall. Effective espousal of a cause means that the leadership or the leader dissolves into this cause. A serious attempt to rescue Americans from the alien regime at war with our way of life awaits the rise of a person to embody their sentiments, focus, and lead them to art successfully in their own interest. 
leadership and identity. Though it seems obvious that trying to lead or even to take part in such an enterprise requires outside self-confidence. Historical examples show that the authority by which some have rallied people's uh, behind flags picked from the dirt flowed more from the flags themselves from the enterprise itself than from any attempt by a leader to project himself onto them. Presuming to lead something far greater than oneself on the basis of that self is likeliest to prove more conceit. In fact, those who have effectively placed themselves at the head of nations become great by becoming one with the causes that daunted them, as they should have. Moses first rejected his comfortable place in Egyptian life by protecting an Israelite. But when the call came from the burning bush, Moses begged off, Not me. I am slow of speech. But the voice from the fire told him that rescuing Israel was not about Moses. It was about what I am wanted done. He would tell Moses what to say and give what helps was needed. Moses' insufficiencies mattered less than the cause. Thus did Moses remind his people that they were sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, bound not to the Egyptians, but by covenant to serve the one true God, and that this God was in, in the process of rescuing them. At every point in the Exodus, Moses pointed to the signs of the Lord's sustaining power. Moses organized them for survival in war. His successes rallied the people behind his leadership and enabled them to lead or enabled him to lead them into a new covenant on the basis of the Decalogue. This refounding arguably was as significant as Abraham's original. When France's entire ruling class dissolved, delivering the country to Hitler, Brigadier Charles de Gaulle, stranded in London, begged that classes better parts to take up France's cause. All refused. He resisted instinctively the prospect of doing it himself, comparing it to, quote, trying to cross the ocean by swimming. But then nobody showed up to shoulder the impossible burden. He put his personal insignificance aside and told his radio audience that, quote, some voice must be raised against the collaborationist outrages and that, quote, tonight that voice will be mine. There was no other. History affords a few examples of a nation as thoroughly abandoned by its ruling class as France was in 1940 and of the reconstruction of an alternate ruling elite, piece by piece, individual by individual, as Charles de Gaulle accomplished between July 1940 and July 1945. His circumstances were special, as all are. But what de Gaulle accomplished was nothing less than to reinfuse life into a mostly dead body politic and to rearticulate a paralyzed one. He reconnected the French people with one another for a collective action on their own behalf. Founders and refounders turned people's resentments and hopes into action by asking them to think of themselves as together, as being in the same boat, as it were, and jointly dedicated to a nation greater than themselves, and hence to stand together first in small, and then in even greater ways. Inevitability, uh, this means joining to overcome resistance. It means fighting and prevailing together in the name of their nation. Their successes counterbalance their inconveniences and burdens involved. Moses secured the Israelites' coherence and adherence to the Decalogue and the rest of the law because he fed them, defeated the Amorites, 
and put the violent dissenters to the edge of the sword in the name of the Lord. In the name of France, de Gaulle asked people to regard the occupiers and collaborators as future, quote, prisoners or corpses, and to only to act only as commanded by la resistance that he organized. But that encouragement was meaningful only because his troops fighting alongside the allies delivered inspiring victories such as the Bur Hakim. That and deft maneuvering against rivals made it possible the effective triumph and refounding of the French nation on the champs Elysees on August 26, 1945. But La Resistance was always about France, not about de Gaulle. Just as the Exodus was never about Moses, but about the Israelites as God's people. Not least of the reasons why this century's Americans' revolt against the ruling class only led, by, led to strengthening in its grip is that it was too much about Donald Trump. <laughs> Amen, late brother Code Villa. We made everything too much about him, and it should have been more about the people who aren't running out to get the jab, the one that he touts on a regular basis that a big chunk of the people that follow him are not running alongside to do. I think we're starting to learn that, and I'm seeing a movement kicked off by American Greatness, uh, American, uh, the AmericanMind.org, and other individuals in the MAGA movement who are thinking bigger than just Trump. What would it take here? The oligarchy that annihilated or prevented the American Republic's institutions rules, not simply to secure privileged access to wealth, it is equally, if not principally, preoccupied with crushing the way of life or whoever are not its members or clients of ourselves. That is why it rules as a hostile occupying power, having replaced the distinction between public and private with that between ins and outs of our, our oligarchy, like all others, exercises power through all manner of connected corporations and individuals in business, education, media, and etc. Each and every part of this oligarchy oppresses us and stands in the way of our reestablishing the Republican way of life among those who wish to live it. Each and every part is our enemy, treating each and every one and their leading individuals as the enemies they are, shielding ourselves from their power as we reestablish self-rule is what rescuing the refounding of America and what that would be about. Like any other way of life based on self-rule, ours can be refounded only by the people themselves. Today, there is no shortage of will to defy the oligarchy at every point at which it impings. Americans know that the resistance and affirmation are effective in the proportion to the members that practice it jointly. Throughout this diverse uh, country, the spirit of resistance ferments and manifests itself in small-scale spontane uh, spontaneous actions, lawsuits, and in state legislatures. Some governors, notably Florida's DeSantis, have protected their people to some extent and above all have proved that opposition to the oligarchs is neither lonely, loony, or hopeless. But because the oligarchy poses the problem nationwide and can bring its whole force to bear against challenges at any point, Frightening it effectively requires marshalling the bulks of the republics or the Republicans nationwide for common action. That marshalling must begin by making clear that the battle is not about competing visions or of the common good about under whose regime we Republicans will live, 
though many, if not most, of the actions by which Republicans can fend off the oligarchs will affect only parts of the people and perhaps only one of the oligarchy's parts, the marshalling will surely be most effective as part of a single national movement. Though many persons must be prominent within such a movement, human experience seems to dictate that it must recognize itself in one leader. Having checked the oligarchy's pressures, the leadership is even more essential for drawing the lines of demarcation behind which peoples who now belong to different regimes and even civilizations may peacefully live side by side. This is not the place to discuss what that role, if any, Donald Trump may play in rescuing Republican America. Suffice it to say about him as about all others who would lead on the national level, that leadership worthy of its name consists of ex- uh, actually organizing successful acts of resistance and affirmation. To several such national level defensive actions, we turn our attention. Defensive battles. Defending Americans against censorship by the tech giants and the rest of the media on behalf of the oligarchy must begin with making clear that these are Republican Americans' enemies, which lie to us, build profiles on us that corporate partners will use to sell things, and that the Democrat Party uses to target and demean us. (laughs) So true. Once millions of Americans grasp this, Google and its lesser giants' influence ends, but for their own partisans. Then legislation becomes possible that makes them liable for perceived harm to individuals to be adjudicated by juries. Organizing collective opposition is key to defending against being fired or otherwise disadvantaged for transgressing the woke requirements that corporations and government agencies are imposing on employees and even on persons who deal with them. Just as individuals are effectively powerless against such acts, So the institutions and agencies become powerless when the bulk of their employees and customers oppose them jointly as part of a nationwide movement that aims politically at the corporation's effective partnership with the oligarchy's political arm, the Democrat Party. Such a national movement can augment the uh, protesters' cohesiveness and force through class action lawsuits. Such joint refusals and lawsuits are also the obvious basis on which to organize Republicans to stop the Democrat Party and its corporate partners from requiring proof of vaccination for traveling on public transportation, going to school, or even going into public places. National leadership must reject the lie that this has anything to do with public health and to leave no doubt that such passports, necessarily digital, inevitably would carry information that amounts to what the Chinese call social credit. States that prohibit them within their borders thereby delegitimize them and make them impracticable nationwide. But only national-level leadership can make sure that the American people treat this power grab as part of the oligarchy's war on Republican-American. Universities and colleges, largely financed through government, having been the fountainhead of the oligarchy's intellectual and moral character, nothing would reduce that fountains pressure on Republican America, like curtailing that financing. Republican America's uh, would-be leaders could campaign to make individual institutions liable for unpaid student debts incurred there at the universities and make them into lending institutions. The Democrats' objections notwithstanding, that cause would prevail, sober the education establishment in countless ways and lower tuition costs. uh, National level involvement in K through 12 education also having been a source of inflation 
and all manner of corruption and attempts to use the Department of Education to remedy the harm that it has caused having miscarried today's leaders should, like Ronald Reagan, promise to abolish that department. And then do it, reminding parents that if they do not educate their own children, the government is sure to miseducate them. The oligarchy's perversion of the American law, its partisan seizure of the justice system and of the intelligence agencies and of the military is the deadliest weapon in the war of annihilation it wages against our republic. Led and largely staffed by partisan Democrats, scarcely distinguishable from the private corporations and institutions it oversees, the bureaucracy legislates and administers against the rest of, the, of, rest of all of us. The Constitution? Are you kidding? asked Nancy Pelosi. The oligarchy lets rapists and robbers walk and punishes only demonstrations against its regime. The only crimes are political. In fact, right now on the Hill, side note, they're talking about how domestic terrorism has exploded. Wow. What is their definition of domestic terrorism? We know, Patriot. We know. It's amazing. The intelligence agencies know, only pretend to know, the evils of Republicans. The armed forces leadership purges them as the enemy within. The oligarchy, having seized our constitutional system's control, only a presidential election can take this weapon from them. But wise leadership can circumscribe its efforts as it prepares such an election, depriving these perversions and seizures of any shadowy uh, or any shadow of legitimacy is key. An argument we make against bureaucratic, prosecutorial and power agency actions as if these actions were errors within our Republican system only give credence to a falsehood, a lie. In fact, the bureaucracies, the intelligence agencies, the armed forces actions against Republicans are not errors. They are the oligarchic regime's acts of war. As the majority of Americans grasp that reality, they deprive the regime's powers of the legitimacy that gives them force. Since the persons who actually wield these powers have careers that transcend electoral cycles, whoever would lead the Republican nation can limit the harm they do by forcibly warning, uh, warning them out that sooner or later, a president will take office who, as the American Republic's vigorous partisan and unlike predecessors, will work terrible vengeance upon any and all persons who have served the oligarchy. Such leaders can show their seriousness by using whatever powers they may have to block funding for parts of the justice system, for the FBI, the CIA, for certain of the uh, parts of the armed forces activities, and especially for our contractors whom they judge to be excessively tied to the oligarchy. Success in battles to protect Republicans will make it possible to work out some arrangement whereby peoples who now belong to two incompatible civilizations and who look for leadership to two hostile regimes may live in peace through intermingled with uh, though may live in peace though intermingled with one another. Working out such an arrangement is what is rescuing America and what that means today. Federalism as never before. The more fine-grained the maps of the American people's electoral choices, as well as of their opinions about most of the important things, the clearer it is that the blue, Democrat, woke, etc. parts are concentrated not simply in California, New York, Illinois, etc., or even in the 16.7% of U.S. counties 
the Democrat Party carried in the 2020 election within those states, counties, and even within their cities, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Austin, there are substantial parts, the residents of which vote for and prefer differently. By the same token, there are parts even of Wyoming, as woke as Venice, California. This intermingling is more fraught with horrid consequences than the 19th century division between Northerners and Southerners. Both of those sides, Lincoln reminded them, prayed to the same God. Their family lives, their personal habits and preferences were identical. All revered America's founders, albeit somewhat differently. None doubted the other's probity. Today, by contrast, America's woke side regards worship of the God of the Bible as the source of white man's rapacity, racism, and oppression. It regards the very words male and female, mother and father, as poisonous and rejects reason itself as the arbiter of argument in favor of identity. Though uh, Through education, it enforces relativism regarding mathematics, never mind sexuality, and wholly denigrates anything that America has been other than the enabler of themselves. America's founders did not intend for the U.S. government to have the power to enforce uh, unanimity of Moors among a diverse population. The very notion of peaceful self-government has ever implied small units within which virtually uh, unanimity about the most important things would reign. The Civil War happened when the South sought to spread its particular Peculiar institution nationwide. The Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision seconded that nationalization and turbocharged northern abolitionism. The ensuing war abolished slavery in the most divisive ways possible and fed a perpetuating, uh, escalating contest about whose moors shall be imposed on the whom. The Supreme Court's nationalization of abortion and its Roe v. Wade decision did to America roughly what Dred Scott had done and was followed by others that furthered fired strife. Now every national election, every judicial nomination is about who shall kill whom under which circumstances, who shall go into those bathrooms, and who are the heroes and who are the villains, and which children shall and shall not be filled with alien hormones. The good news is that the U.S. government has less credit and hence less real power to decide such matters than ever before. Alas, it also has lost the capacity to prevent opposite sides of those bellicose questions from taking their preferences into their own hands. The United States of America is coming apart. The only question is whether it finishes doing so to avoid violence or result thereof. Republican American success in the aforementioned defensive battles should convince the oligarchy to limit its absolute power to the people who want to live under it. The persons whom the Republicans choose in successive elections will have substantial power to define the terms by which America's tribes relate to one another. Maximum latitude for each and minimum interference with the other should be the guidelines. Affording maximum autonomy to each is essential to ensure uh, peace among people who identify with civilizations at odds with each other. The U.S. Constitution's letter gives nearly all powers of government to the states and reserves unmentioned ones to the people. Surely that includes powers over bathrooms, marriages, who competes with whom, in which sports. It certainly includes power over elections. Customarily, we have regarded countries and cities purely as legal creatures of the states, enjoying only such autonomy as the states may concede. Through a federal statute granting broad autonomy over such matters to the states, uh, constituted subunits and giving enough like-minded people the power to form units that enjoy such autonomy would run against 
more than a century of court decisions, it finds no barrier in the Constitution's letter. Congress and the president can do this. The alternative is already unfolding. People on all sides have learned to, quote, stop me if you can, it is today's operative constitutional law. Pretty soon, everywhere will be a sanctuary for something the willful and well-organized obey what they will and disobey what they dare. Better for all if the separation follows the law of logic rather than force. What then? Geographically, Republican America will reign from shore to shore, from Canada to Mexico. Its birth rate, its educational systems products, its economic vigor, its social stability, its degree of happiness will reflect how fit today's Republicans are for self-government. We cannot foresee and should not speculate how their successes and failures might affect woke America. We can be sure, however, that radical decentralization at home can only reduce the matters with which U.S. foreign policy deals and hence increase the likelihood that they be dealt with soberly. That's Angelo Cotevilla, a piece from the AmericanMind.org. We lost him today. God bless him. A great thinker. Go back and read some of his works. You will not be disappointed. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, TuneIn, iHeart, Spotify. You can also get the channel on the Roku app in your Roku streaming store. You can also donate anchor.fm slash Adrian Slade slash support. Or call to be on the show. 1929 go go USA. 1929 go go USA. God bless.